It took the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the Apostle Paul, and yet he was probably as straight as an arrow as any person could be, and yet his pride was in that which would destroy him and ultimately send him to hell. And he had to die to that so that he could have the life that God intended for him. As you're turning to Philippians chapter 3, let me remind you that we are two Sundays away from going to our new schedule with worship at 9.30, Sunday school at 8.15 for the groups that are selected to go there. And, and then at uh, 11 o'clock, we'll have a faith Sunday school for the majority of folks. Eventually, that will work into a full two Sunday school uh, segment. But uh, we begin that new schedule on the 8th, and we are also just a little over uh, six weeks away from Refresh. And uh, Ken Jenkins and Bill Stafford and Eddie Anders and Roger and Linda Breland and others will be with us for our Refresh conference. And I'm looking forward to what God will do this year because it will be different than what he did last year. Because God works in fresh and new ways in our lives. And there are new things for us to learn and new experiences for us to have and new opportunities for us to take a step of faith with the Lord. And so I encourage you to mark that on your calendar. We will have sessions during the day with Refresh, and I hope you'll be able to take Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday off, at least the mornings off, because the sessions will be in the mornings and be here with us as we talk about what God wants to do in revival and an awakening. And in an election year, there's nothing more important than revival. I didn't get a lot of amens out of that. That worries me, because some of you think the most important thing for America is who's president. The most important thing for America is revival. George Bush can't bring revival, and John Kerry can't bring revival. Only the Holy Spirit of God can bring revival. And George Bush and John Kerry can't stop revival, because when God decides to move, he will move with us or in spite of us. He will run over us if he has to. So the most important decision in this fall is not who I'm going to vote for. The most important decision I have to make is, am I going to be an instrument of revival so that God can use me to impact the culture in which he's put me? Now, I've already started preaching, so I need to get to my sermon. Philippians chapter 3 is one of those great passages on true Christianity. In Philippians 3, Paul will deal with some basic doctrines of the church, but he begins coming out of chapter 2, talking about Timothy and Epaphroditus. He begins by saying, finally, my brethren, rejoice in your circumstances. Does anybody's translation say that? Rejoice in what? The Lord. To write the same thing again is no trouble to me. You see, Paul knew that we have to be reminded. We forget easily. So Paul says, you know, I've already told you this, but I'm going to tell you again. And by the way, he's going to say it two more times in in chapter 4 because he knows that we forget. So he says, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware. Now he's going to use the word beware three times here. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus 
and put no confidence in the flesh. Now, I want you to look at how he talks about the word confidence here. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul wants the church to understand that you do not blend legalism with grace, that we are under grace. We are in a new covenant relationship with God. And in that relationship with God, it is not in keeping the law that we are found righteous or blameless. There's a whole movement in Christianity around the world of legalism. And that legalism puts people in bondage. I have never, ever, if you are one and you are happy, please come introduce yourself. I'll change my story. I have never met a legalist that looked happy or acted like they were happy. They look like they're mad at the world, and they might be even a little ticked at God for making them keep all their rules so that they will be justified by what they don't do. I don't smoke, and I don't chew, and I don't go with girls who do. I've got a list in my Bible, my nasty nine, my filthy five, my dirty dozen, all those sins that, that we're not supposed to do. And if you do those things, you're not... See, sin, let me remind you, for the legalist is what you do that they don't do that they don't approve of. Are you with me? You see, they're... they're interpretation of sin is not what the Bible says is sin. The Bible says whatsoever is not of faith is sin. The legalist doesn't live by faith for the simple reason he lives by keeping his dots punched on his card. He doesn't walk by faith with God. He walks by rules, and by keeping those rules, he thinks he's justified. Legalists say that, you know, you know, I mean, they get in all kinds of stuff. You know, some legalists say women can't wear makeup. I say if the barn needs painting, go to it, you know. <laughs> Men, don't you dare look at your wives right now. If you do, it's going to be a cold meal today at lunch. Well, you know, women can't wear pants, and, and you can't do this, and you can't do it. Listen, folks, there's nothing, you, anytime anybody throws that in your face, ask them chapter and verse. Ask them what verse is in. You're welcome. <laughs> ask them the chapter and verse. Christ has set us free, not to act however we want, but to be free under his lordship from the bondage of keeping rules to please God. I don't please God by keeping rules. I please God by having a right relationship with him and walking in fellowship with his son and walking in the fullness of the spirit. And if I'm in fellowship with the son and if I'm walking in the fullness of the spirit, there's some things I won't do. But I won't do them because I'm trying to check my box and make sure that I'm good so Santa Claus will come visit me this year. It will be because it is out of a love relationship, not out of a law relationship with God. The law simply tells me I'm a sinner and I can't live up to God's standard. That's what the law tells me. Now, I've chased that rabbit. Let's go on. 
We are commanded to rejoice in the Lord alone. Not in our circumstances, not in events, because those things change. Let me, let me give you a definition of joy. Joy is the supernatural exhilaration in God and His goodness. Joy is the supernatural exhilaration in God and His goodness. And you could add the word grace in there too. There's an exhilaration, there's a joy, there's an overflowing. Jesus said in John 15, 11, These things I have spoken to you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be made full. So what's joy? Joy is the presence of Jesus in my life. It's not dependent on my circumstances. In fact, the word happiness is a translation of a word that is closely associated with the word chance. In other words, happiness is a word that means if things work out like I want them to work out, if all the stars are in line, if my horoscope is good, if circumstances are there for, to the liking of my mind, then I'll be happy. Americans think that they have a right to happiness because it says in our Constitution the pursuit of happiness. But you know what? You can pursue happiness and come to a dead-end street. And you can have houses and cars and people with houses and cars and lands and millions of dollars go to bed every night trying to drink or drug themselves into sleep because there's no happiness inside. Happiness is not in your circumstances. It is joy that is found in a relationship with Christ. James Boyce says, every Christian virtue has its counterpart in the so-called virtue of the world. The world has sex. Christians have love. The world strives for security. Christians have trust. The world seeks gratification. Christians know peace. The world seeks happiness. The Christian counterpart is joy. Now, let's understand something. The fruit of the Spirit cannot be grown without the root of Christ. In other words, you cannot produce the fruit of the Spirit in your life. The Holy Spirit has to produce that in your life. When Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, he is talking to people who are in the bondage of legalism. That's what Galatians is about. And he's trying to set them at liberty, not for license, but liberty. And what Paul is saying is this thing that needs to be who you are, these characteristics are really characteristics of the life of Christ. You cannot have those characteristics without having Christ. You can't work this up. This is an inside-out job. And so the fruit of the Spirit comes from the root of Christ. Romans 14, 7, the kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy and in the Holy Spirit. If I'm going to be righteous, if I'm going to have peace, and if I'm going to have joy in my life, then it's got to be in the Holy Spirit because I tell you, one day to the next, the news may change. Circumstances may change. Life may change. And so my righteousness is in Christ and in the Holy Spirit. My peace is in Christ and in the Holy Spirit. And my joy is in Christ and in the Holy Spirit. Now you take Romans 14, 7 and you take John 15, 11, where he says that my joy might be in you and that your joy may be made full. Guess what? Your joy is Jesus. And whatever it is, listen to me that is stealing your joy, 
Jesus has already overcome that. You're just not living in his overcoming power. Whatever it is, Jesus has already come. He's overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil. He's given us victory over death and hell and the grave. Whatever it is that's got you under your circumstances, you need to see that Jesus has come to give you what you cannot work up. He's already put it in you. Rejoicing is a twofold decision. First of all, I live under his lordship. If I'm going to rejoice, I'll rejoice by living under his lordship because Jesus does not bring joy to a divided mind or to divided loyalties. You see, if I'm under his lordship, I, I, I have joy because he's in control and I'm not. So there's joy in him. I live under his lordship. Secondly, I embrace his unconditional love. Now listen to me very carefully. There's somebody in this room that needs this right now, all right? You may know that Jesus loves you unconditionally up here, but you're not living in the joy of it. You know it in your head, but it's not made the trip to your heart yet. You see, you can know, oh, God loved me. God loves me unconditionally. And you can know that and not live in the joy of it. And if somebody were to ask you, you know, do you know that God loves you unconditionally? Yes, but I've got this and I've got that. I've got this problem. I've got that problem. I've got this thing and I've got that thing. You can just get in bondage rather than saying, you know, I'm under his lordship. I'm under and in his unconditional love. I'm going to live in the joy of that, that the fact that no matter what anybody thinks about me, God loves me unconditionally. Now, is that all right with you if God loves you unconditionally? Would you rather God love you conditionally? You see, his unconditional love means that I can have joy in my relationship with him and with other people because he has put that inside of us. You see, your mental orientation will determine your view of life. How you are thinking determines how you see life. Either you see life as unfair and unkind and you always drew the short straw and you always made the bad decision and always made the wrong turn and somebody did this to you and somebody did that to you and, and you can play the blame game and never know joy. Or you can say, God, you knew this was going to happen before it ever happened. And you must love me or you wouldn't trust me with it because you're trusting me with it to share Jesus out of this experience and out of this circumstance and to see you in the middle of this circumstance so something in me must be valuable to you or you wouldn't have trusted me with it. Secondly, we are warned of those who will try to steal our joy. Now, isn't it amazing that Paul, I mean Paul can shift gears quicker than any Baptist preacher I know. He's talking about rejoicing, and almost immediately he starts warning them about the Judaizers who are trying to steal their joy. Now understand this, Paul is choosing his terms under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Paul is not being derogatory, he's not being ugly, he's being factual. He's calling these people what they are. 
And I, I am amazed, quite honestly, at preachers who won't call things what they are. They beat around the bush, and they, they skirt around the issue, and they, you know, they'll never say that something is a sin. They'll never stand for any issue. They'll never stand for any truth because they're afraid they might offend somebody. Apparently, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, put down in an inerrant word, didn't have problem calling things what they were. Now, we are so politically correct today that we've got to call it everything but what it is. But Paul, if we're going to listen to the New Testament, we need to be like Paul. Let's call it what it is. And that's exactly what Paul did. He exposes the error. You see, the job of the preacher is not just to declare truth. It is also to expose error. It is also to point out where there are inconsistencies. And this is not a new teaching for Paul. I don't know if this quote's in your notes, but Vance Havner said, Someone may have reminded Paul that one can catch more flies with honey than with vinegar. But Paul wasn't in the fly-catching business. The church militant can easily become the church decadent and then the church complacent. A church that is militant and active for God if false teaching gets in, things that will steal our joy get in, the church will become decadent under the guise of keeping rules even, and then the church can become complacent. By the way, just a side note of 30-plus years of observing this, legalism allows people to hide sin and not deal with it. And by the way, legalism is at its worst in a husband and wife relationship because the man will use the scripture that he is supposed to be an authority and the woman is supposed to submit and beat his wife up with it. That's legalism. That's not a true interpretation of what that verse means. All right, I chased that one. Nobody said amen, so I'll just keep going. The church was in danger of dogs, evil workers, and false circumcision. I have written in the margin of my Bible, these are the three stooges of false religion. Dogs, evil workers, and false circumcision. Let's look at the word dogs, first of all. There are some references there. We don't have time to look at them. But, you know, these are dogs that are always looking for a fight. I mean, they're always looking for a fight. They're always barking and howling and growling and digging up stuff, fighting and competing, who's going to rule the roost, who's going to be the big dog that sits on the porch. And he says, these dogs are there. And, and by the way, he's writing this about the Judaizers who were converted Jews. And a dog was a demeaning term to a Jew because that's what they thought a Gentile was. A Gentile was a dog. An unclean dog, and the most derogatory term that a Jew could use for a Gentile was to call them a dog. And Paul turns it around and says, you ought to know what a dog is, what an unclean dog is. You're an unclean dog. Why? Because you're saying we have to keep the law to be saved, and you're outside the covenant if you're saying that. You don't even understand the covenant if you're saying that. Secondly, he says they were evil workers. Never miss a chance to stir things up. 
These are people who are active. They're working, he says. They're not just evil. They're evil workers. They're working to undermine. They're making issues out of non-issues. They're, they're teaching a works-oriented salvation. They are majoring on minors and spreading evil. They are worldly-minded. F.B. Meyer says they are fanatical and unbalanced. They are the cranks of the church. They introduce fads, exaggerate the importance of trifles, catch up on every new theory and follow it to the detriment of truth and love. It is impossible to exaggerate the harm these people do. Evil workers. Now, he's talking about people inside the church. He's warning the church at Philippi about these people who are attacking the church and doing it under the guise of, you need to do these things so that you can be saved. The false circumcision. Literally, the flesh mutilators. Paul was gruesome in his terminology here. It is a very grotesque picture. The flesh mutilators. The word circumcised means to cut around. And it was a symbol of the Abrahamic covenant. But Paul says these people are flesh mutilators. They are butchers. They're just like a butcher, just chopping away at people. You see, anytime a religious practice loses its true meaning, it becomes pagan. And this was a sign of the covenant to the Jews that had become, in fact, an idolatrous act, offering up an act, a symbol, as a sign of salvation. Galatians 4.9, But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You see, their point of pride in this circumcision and saying you had to be circumcised so you could be saved, their point of pride in that was proof that they weren't saved. Or at least they had missed the point of salvation. And Paul is adamant. He shows no patience. In fact, in Acts chapter 15 and verse 1, this is the first time he tells us about this, some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. By the way, we still have Judaizers with us today. Unless you're baptized, you can't be saved. And they'll quote you about three verses, one of them out of the book of Acts, which you never build doctrine out of Acts. Acts is a historical, experiential book. It's not a doctrinal book. You don't build any doctrine out of Acts, and most error comes from people misinterpreting the Old Testament, not using it in light of the New Testament, or misinterpreting the book of Acts and trying to make it a doctrinal book. You have to be baptized to be saved. That doesn't say that. It says repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. That's not what that means. Baptism was an outward symbol of an inward change. But I want to tell you something. If you walk this aisle today and you say, I need to trust Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior, and on your way to that door to fill out a card, you drop dead, you're going to go to heaven. Amen. You will not go to hell because we didn't get you to the baptistry. Right. Baptism is an act of obedience. It is not an act of salvation. 
You don't get saved by being baptized. And there are whole denominations that tell you you've got to be baptized to be saved. In fact, if you're not baptized by them, you're not saved. By the way, Baptists have fallen into this trap too. Landmark Baptists have fallen into this, that if you weren't baptized in a Baptist church, your baptism wasn't real. Your baptism is real if it is by immersion, because that is what the Greek word means. If you were sprinkled, you need to be scripturally baptized by immersion. But if you have been scripturally baptized and you came from another denomination that immersed, your baptism would be accepted here for the simple reason that baptism has nothing to do with your salvation. It has to do with your obedience. And we can add a lot of things. They just happen to add circumcision. But the symbol was not backed up by a spiritual reality. They said, well, we got circumcision. But there was no spiritual reality to go along with it. The religion had no reality and the ritual was without response. They were following this ritual. And I'll tell you, anything you add to the grace of God is error. We are saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves, lest anybody boast. You see, you can say, well, I need to be baptized to be saved. Yeah, that means that you've got to do something. You do have to do something to obey God. You don't have to do anything but respond to the Holy Spirit who initiated all that in you in the first place when you get saved. Yesterday's Judaism is today's legalism. I want to tell you, if I was in a church that was legalistic, I would find a way to bolt for the door as quick as I could. Because it would rob me of the joy of knowing that a sinner like me could be saved by a holy God. That God would shed his blood on a cross for me in spite of everything I've done and everything I've thought and everything I ever will do. That he came and gave his life for me as total love for me and total grace towards me. It is amazing to me that God would do that for me or anybody else. And I would run from anything that says, now that you got Jesus, you need to add something else to him. Jesus is all you need. You don't need to add anything to Jesus. He's the all-sufficient one. It's what the book of Colossians is about. Christ is sufficient to save you. His Holy Spirit representing Him in you sanctifies you. And Christ is sufficient because of His death and resurrection and ascension to glorify you. You don't have to go outside of Jesus to find what you need. And keeping the law will never satisfy you anyway because you'll just be eaten up with guilt every time you don't do it. Rather than going before God in His grace and in His mercy and say, God, you know I've blown it. But I come to you today and ask for forgiveness. And God says if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, it helps some people if they just read the Bible. I mean, that's all you got to do is just read the Bible. Just start in Matthew and go all the way through and read it and see if you come up with some of this stupid stuff people come up with. I mean, who comes up with this stuff? 
people who cannot leave the old behind and believe that they've got to work themselves into approval with God so that they might be accepted. Listen, if you're waiting until you can get good enough to be saved, you're never going to be saved. You've got to realize you're a sinner and you need grace and you need forgiveness and you're hopeless without Christ and that's when you're ready to be saved. Oswald Sanders says, Legalism wrenches the joy of the Lord from the believer, and with the joy of the Lord goes his power for vital worship and vibrant service. The truth is betrayed, and the glorious name of the Lord becomes a synonym for a gloomy killjoy. The Christian under the law is a miserable parody of the real thing. Tim Hansel, the irony of ironies, his commitment to Jesus Christ has become a prison rather than a blessing. So blinded by religious observations and reservations, he fails to see the festivity that was so central in the life of Jesus. I, I love that. The, the, I don't know if it's the visual Bible, whichever one it was, did the Gospel of Matthew. Is it the visual Bible? Is that the one? Okay. Did the Gospel? I love that one. You know why? Because Jesus laughed in that. I mean, why would Jesus tell us to have joy if he didn't have any? You see some of these movies? Jesus kind of looks like he's been sucking a lemon and drinking vinegar. I'm down here to save you, but I don't like it. Remember the scene in The Passion? When Jesus is thinking about a fun time with his mother, when he threw his water on his mother? I, I guarantee you, people wrote Mel Gibson and said, Jesus would never throw water on his mother. <laughs> well, she needed to be baptized. Jesus wouldn't have enjoyed anything. Listen, if you read some of the parables of Jesus in the original language and in Aramaic, those are humorous stories. People would laugh because Jesus would be using sanctified sarcasm to drive his point home. Jesus was full of joy. I believe that my Lord laughed. Yes, he was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, but he was also the living God who had created all things and said, that's good. That's good. You imagine one morning when Jesus woke up with the disciples had been sleeping out on the side of the road one day, and one guy said, well, maybe Simon Peter, he's always one to open his mouth, says, boy, look at that sunrise. And Lord turns and says, I did that. Peter, you should have been there. All I had to do was say, hey, let's have a son. There it was. Wow, Lord. Yeah, tick the devil off too. <laughs> oh, folks, listen. Legalism is man's corruption of God's law. It is man's corruption of God's law. It is the ultimate picture of self-righteousness. Now lastly, we're reminded of what's really important. Paul says, first of all, what's really important is a life of worship. We are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God. Worship and joy are not events. They're a lifestyle. Worship is not what we do on Sundays. Worship is who we're supposed to be. 
We are created to be worshipers of God. To worship Him and to love Him and to adore Him. I remember uh, a church I served one time and you know, the music, I don't know if you ever get this, but, you know, we'd be singing, and all the staff had to sit on the platform, you know, during, during that, and, and we'd be sitting up there on the platform, and people would be standing up there singing like this. Or counting light bulbs. Or doing this. And so, as a joke, some of us on the staff, because we always sing, every Sunday we sing the family of God during the welcome time. You know, stand up, we're going to sing the family of God and, and, and shake hands with people around you. So on the staff, we'd stand back there and say, I'm surprised you're a part of the family of God. <laughs> I mean, you ever had anybody tell you you're a Christian and you're shocked by it? Man. And, Tell somebody else because you ain't convincing me. You see, he says there's a life of worship. He's talked about shining his lights. That our lives are be committed to worship. We are to worship God in spirit and in truth. John 4, 24. Worship is not about a place you go. It's about a person that you love. Worship. Secondly, a life lived to God's glory. Glory in Christ Jesus. The word means to boast or to rejoice. Now the real force of this phrase is found in contrasting it to those who put confidence in the flesh. He says, my confidence is not in my flesh, although I could boast about my flesh. My confidence and my glory is in Christ Jesus. The sight of the glory of God humbles us. And when the sun comes out, the stars disappear. I'm afraid we've got a star mentality in the church today. For pastors, for Christian musicians, for artists, we have a star mentality. I mean, we've got a groupy star. We become just like the world. Oh, look, there's brother so-and-so, a man of whom we are not worthy. Oh, I got to go see them. I got to go hear them. I, I got to get them to sign my face because I don't want to mess up my t shirt. I'll never wash my hand again. I got to meet them. Listen, folks, when the Son of God shines brightest, there are no stars in the kingdom. The only light you see is the light from the living God whose face shone at his transfiguration to give us an image of what it would be like when we're in his presence. No confidence in the flesh. You can't strut and surrender at the same time. Paul lists his qualifications. They're pretty impressive. But here's a statement that you need to remember. Our efficiency without God's sufficiency is only a deficiency. Our efficiency, what we can do without God's sufficiency is only a deficiency. We will still be lacking. Paul was a Jew by birth, a Greek by speech, 
a Roman by citizenship, a lawyer by training, a tent maker by trade, but he was an apostle by the grace of God. Paul lists his qualifications and says there's nothing. He says some of you have confidence in the flesh, and flesh is used about 14 different ways in, in the New Testament, but let me just give you some meanings here quickly. First of all, having confidence in religious heritage. Having confidence in my religious heritage. Well, I was born a Baptist. Really? Uh, my, my grandfather was a preacher. I had a guy say that to me a few months ago. He lost as a ball in tall weeds. I mean, I'd say, you know, well, tell me about your relationship with the Lord. I said, my, my grandfather was a preacher. Well, I didn't get him to heaven. Oh, my grandfather was a preacher. So? Somebody in this room's grandfather probably spent some time in jail, but they ain't bragging about it. Bragging on heritage. I was baptized as a child, confirmed as a child. Yeah, what have you done with it? I was sprinkled. So-and-so's my godfather, my godmother, my grandparents. Well, who cares? Secondly, having pride in my knowledge and position as to the law of Pharisee. Folks, it is possible to be a walking encyclopedia of Bible knowledge and not know God. The Pharisees didn't know God. They knew the law. They memorized more of it than all of us in this room put together, but they didn't know God. Thirdly, having pride in my accomplishments, verse 6. I love what Stuart Briscoe says, Catechism didn't die on Calvary and church history didn't rise for you. Jesus did. Having pride in my accomplishments. You see, some of us, we got to get over ourselves. Paul almost missed heaven because he was convinced that Jesus was not Messiah. And until he met Jesus on the Damascus Road, Paul was headed to hell and he had more religious baggage than everybody that I know. I mean, he had it all. He could have passed all the tests. He could have passed the Bible knowledge quiz. He could have, he could have told you how to share his faith. But he had to meet Jesus personally. To get to know Christ. Let me ask you. Are you under the law today? Or are you under love? Are you hoping to get to heaven today because you joined a church or were baptized? Or is your hope built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness? Vance Havner said Jesus used his most severe language for the religious leaders of his times, the scribes and Pharisees. They read the scriptures, attended worship, gave a tithe, were separated from the world, led moral lives, and sought to win others to their faith. So may one do all these things today and still not know the Lord. Nothing is more despicable in his sight than hypocrisy, play-acting, presenting an image of righteousness without reality. This is form without force. Everything in the show window, but nothing on the shelves. Let's pray together. Fathers, we come before you today. 
I just believe in my heart that there are some people here that a long time ago joined a church. But they didn't know you when they did that. They are trusting in being good or moral or ethical. They are trusting in being Americans. They are trusting in being good fathers or good mothers or good kids. They're trusting in works that will not save them. And consequently, there's no joy like you speak of in your word. Lord, remind us today, it is not what we do that saves us. It is believing who you are that changes us. Father, I ask you that uh, in these moments of invitation that no one would move and no one would distract from what you want to do in somebody's life today. This is too important. Lives hang in the balance. Heaven and hell is at stake today, and that's more important than getting to our car ahead of everybody else. And so God, bear down on each of us the burden to pray for those who need to trust you, who need to come to you as Lord and Savior, who need to become a part of this church family because they have been saved. Move, Holy Spirit of God, up and down these aisles and through these chairs and in the mezzanine, and in the back, and in the front. So that Jesus might be glorified, and the church might be built up. In Jesus' name, amen. George Whitfield was one of the most influential Christians of the 18th century. He had morning and evening prayers. He prayed and sang the Psalms three times a day. George Whitfield was religious.